Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Last Sunday, we began our study of the book of Nahum, and we looked at the book from a 40,000-foot flyover so that we could grasp the context of the vision and the burden of, uh, of Nineveh. Let's remember for just a moment the context here of the book of Nahum. Just really quick, I'm going to fly through this as fast as I can. After the repentance of Nineveh, through the preaching of Jonah, God gave Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdom, a reprieve from the Assyrian oppression. That oppression ramped back up about 730 B.C., and really it culminates for the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. after the fall of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Judah, the southern kingdom, was spared during the, king, during the reign of King Hezekiah, a man of faith. One of the greatest kings at all of Judah. But they still, through Hezekiah, and then for the next three kings, they're continuing to deal with incredible pressure from the Assyrians. Nahum receives the prophecy uh, that we're studying here, probably during the reign of one of Judah's most wicked kings, King Manasseh. Manasseh had a tremendous father, Hezekiah, but he did not follow in the footsteps of his father. And Manasseh, according to 2 Kings chapter 21, became king when he was 12 years old and uh, reigned 50 and 5 years. 55 years this man reigned and he was an evil king. Verse 2 of 1 Kings 21 tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 33 told us about Manasseh that he did worse He led the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do worse than the heathen. Manasseh was an evil, wicked king. And so we have an evil ruler, a wicked ruler, and the oppression that that brings on top of the Assyrian Empire, and they're upping the intensity on little Judah. If you recall last week, I told you that about this time of Manasseh, the Assyrian Empire really desires to take over Egypt, and here Judah's caught in the middle both geographically and strategically between the the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptians. The people in Jerusalem are weary. They're weary from the Assyrians and their constant pressure, their constant oppression. And on top of that, a wicked king, a wicked man ruling for 55 years. You think about 55 years. People are tired because sin is exhausting. A wicked king leading a nation in wicked activities is nothing but exhausting bondage. And Judah's feeling that in this moment. The main object of the prophecy for Judah is directed to Nineveh. The same Nineveh that Jonah had preached to a hundred years before Nahum. The same Nineveh that had turned, literally they turned and they, they fasted, even made their animals to fast. The message of Nahum is simple and to the point. God is greatly displeased. God is greatly displeased. Now, I know we hear that, and we're not careful, we'll we'll see that in very five-year-old Sunday school eyes. 
because we don't understand a full grasp of the displeasure of God. But let me just tell you, the displeasure of God is not warm and fuzzy by any stretch of the imagination. The people of Judah needed to hear this message. They needed to know what God was going to do to Nineveh. They needed to understand the very character of God because it is in this character, it is in this justice, judgment, holiness, wrath, and fury that the people of Jerusalem were to find comfort. They were to find comfort in this. This portion of chapter 1 that we're looking at today is actually written as Hebrew poetry. I don't really have time to get into explaining all this, but it's fascinating study. But it would have been, this, this after the time of Nahum, this would have been a portion here, verses 2, probably all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 15, would have been a portion that maybe after the, 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 the 7th century and forward, it would have been something that would have been sung and chanted and, and, and would have been prayed over. Because what happens in these words is these powerful words of comfort connected the, the, the Jew to God. The words are about objective facts and not subjective feelings. So for the Jew, when the days were concerning and the days were alarming and the days were uncomfortable, they needed assurance from a God who was not concerned because He was already in tomorrow. They needed comfort from a God who was not alarmed like they were because God is a sovereign one who knows how the story goes and how the story ends. They needed deep comfort from a God who, even when life was uncomfortable, was not indifferent to their comfort issues, but promises to be their comfort in days of sorrow and pain. See, the truth is, the story of Nahum, and the, excuse me, the prophecy of Nahum is not just for a Jew, but now for you and I as believers. We live in a broken world. We live in a, in a concerning time. We live in an alarming situations. We have uncomfortable environments around us. We're put through the, the pain of a broken world. And hear me, my friends, we need someone bigger than us. Someone bigger than us. So I want to introduce you to, who, to whom Nahum introduced the people of Jerusalem. Because it is this person who is to give us comfort. So let me quickly get into this. Number one, there's three ways that we find in verses 2 through 8 that Nahum introduces God to the Jew and now to you and I. The first point we see there in verses 2 and 3 is this. It's the God who brings judgment. The God who brings judgment. Most modern readers, even Christians, don't really know what to do with the way that God is described here. We simply lack the categories that, that are necessary for this passage. And the truth is, these words that we're going to hear, for many people, they don't sit well with them. But hear them very carefully. Verse 2, God is jealous. And the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance and Excuse me, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. I could probably spend the entire morning on this portion alone, but the people of Judah needed to hear that they needed to trust God, and the one who brings judgment was their covenant God, and he was going to judge Nineveh. 
And Nineveh needs to know that this judgment is coming because what's explained here? The first way that God is explained is that God is jealous. That God is jealous. Now the modern reader and any Christian may not introduce God in this way. We might tend to think of God in categories of holiness or love. But Nahum's first descriptor here to people who need comfort is that God is jealous. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 24 tells us, The Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 9 we find God introduced this way, For I the Lord thy God am a jealous God. Now God being jealous simply means this, that God is zealous to protect what belongs to him. Now you might want to take comfort in these words this morning. God is zealous to protect what belongs to him. He will not allow another to have the honor that's due to him. His glory belongs to him and him alone. And God's people belong to him. And so God's holiness will not allow rivals. And so his jealousy comes in and says, these are my people, that is my glory, this is my honor, and you don't get to mess with what belongs to me. God's jealousy is thus based on two fundamental claims. God has made us so we rightly belong to him and should love our creator. That's one. God being jealous also is this. God has purchased us through his acts of deliverance. So we rightly belong to the one who has saved us. Fentress said it like this. He said, God is not jealous of his people, but he is jealous for his people. And so the attribute of jealousy here simply tells us that God is loyal to himself and his people. He is loyal to his glory and his honor, and he is loyal to those by whom he is created and redeemed. God doesn't tolerate disloyalty. He alone will be worshipped and nobody else. He's jealous if his people violate their loyalty to him. Why? Because God knows that your best life lived is to him. So he's jealous if others attack his people. And why was God jealous for Judah? Well, Jeremiah 3, and I can't get into all this, simply tells us that Judah, like Israel, had now followed and gone in the way of playing the harlot, is the words that Jeremiah used. Judah had defiled the land, committed adultery, because she had begun to find, uh, to, 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 uh, find uh, foreign powers and their idols to be that which they were, they were trying to get political and protection. They were looking to people rather than God. They were looking to the Assyrians rather than God. And God was displeased with Judah. So therefore, the Lord's jealousy leads to his vengeance not only against those who violate their covenant with God, but also against those who violate his covenant people. So this leads us to the next way he's described, and I'm hurrying, you're just going to have to bear with me here. The Lord, then we find the Lord revengeth and take vengeance, takes vengeance. Three times in verse 2 alone, Nahum tells us that the Lord revengeth or will take vengeance. Three times. He's greatly displeased with the Assyrians and how they have treated those of Judah. He's greatly displeased with Judah under Manasseh and Ammon's wicked leadership for 57 years. He's displeased with what they have done in response to the Assyrians. And so God is going to take vengeance. And this vengeance, don't miss this, is directly connected to God's justice. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says it like this. 
To me belongeth vengeance, God. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Romans chapter 12, Paul says it like this. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But we find the comforting words of Nahum are that God will take vengeance. So we don't have to. The explanation of God being furious is interesting here as well. It's not saying that God is filled with fury and that he is somebody who is an angry God, but that God actually has a masterful hand over his fury. He chooses the right time to act in vengeance. And every Christian who I talk to about this very topic says, well, when is is God going to act? And the very reality of God's vengeance and fury is this. God knows when God needs to act. God knows when he needs to bring fury, when he needs to act in vengeance and to take vengeance. And then a statement in verse 2 that ought to make every knee tremble. Nahum says that God has reserved his wrath for his enemies. He's reserved his wrath for his enemies. Say, Pastor, these are not really all that encouraging words. They would be encouraging if you were living under oppression. Now there's a New Testament application, get ready for because it's going to hit us really, really strong in a moment. But God will take vengeance on his enemies. And if you were living in Jerusalem during the 7th and 8th century, you'd be thankful that God is going to take vengeance on a people that, that are beating you up and oppressing you. This is important because God has reserved his wrath for his enemies. It means that God takes Nineveh's attack on Judah as a personal attack. When you inflict harm on God's people, you're attacking God. When you seek to harm an image bearer of God, you're trying to harm God. You're his enemy, and you will be a recipient of his wrath. When you try to inflict harm on God's church, you are attacking God. But then Judah, excuse me, Nahum goes on to say that the Lord is also slow to anger and in great power. And because God is jealous and takes vengeance and his, he's, he's, he's furious, we would expect God to bring wrath and anger quickly. But verse 3 tells us that the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. The Ninevites had already experienced that a hundred years before. You remember Jonah? God, what's God, I told you, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh, because you are slow to anger. Jonah's like us. God, you should be doing something. But God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger and he's patient with his anger towards those that violate him. Moses had learned this about God in Exodus 34. Numbers, in Numbers we find that, that, God is, that, that God is also at the same time not only slow to anger, but he is of great power. And so here's the beauty of this. Don't you dare think for a moment that because God is slow to anger that that means he's weak. Don't take God's patience and long-suffering heart towards people. Do not read that as God being weak. It is God being slow to anger, but great in power. It means that God, in his slowness to anger, gives time for repentance. Gives time for repentance. And let me just say today to our church family, and anybody watching online, believer and unbeliever alike, today is the day for repentance. Do Do not store up Do not store up 
the divine judgment for the unbeliever and the chastisement for the believer. Do not store that up by, by, by pushing off and pushing off and pushing off your sin. Because God may be slow to anger, but He is great in power. He's great in power. And when God acts, you'll know it. You'll know it. The last thing he says here in these verses is that the Lord will not acquit the wicked. He will not acquit the wicked. You can rest assured that a God who is jealous, that brings vengeance, will act with judgment and justice. The wicked will be held responsible. And my friends, take, take heart of that today. In 2020, take heart of that. That God will hold wickedness responsible. He will hold wicked people responsible. He will, not be, he will not push that aside. He will not acquit the wicked. He will, not, he will not say, it's not a big deal, go aside. No, God takes wickedness seriously. This quote, it's in your outline if you're looking at it. In the courtroom of the holy judge, those that are guilty of wickedness will not escape. It will not escape. Who can escape the wrath and the fury of a holy God? Who can escape the vengeance of God? And I know that this isn't really all that exciting on a a Sunday morning, but these words were comforting to the Jew. And in the midst of a world that I promise you, my friends, we don't believe in evolution, it's not going to get much better. Not going to get much better. Let me give you some encouraging words. God will have his day. God will take vengeance. God will have justice. God will judge. And we are going to see the power of a patient God before you know it. Take comfort. Take comfort. Then we see secondly, quickly, we see a God who is fierce. Oh, the God who is fierce. In this beautiful Hebrew poetry, he doesn't write about flowers and tulips. He writes about wrath and fury. He presents here in verses 3 all the way through verse number 6, he presents some ways in which God has power over the creation. In case you're wondering if God is powerful, that God has power over creation. The Assyrian Empire, they had human power, but they couldn't do what's described here. That God, we find here in verse 3, the Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. Can't control the whirlwind and the storm, but God does. And that should make men tremble. God is so great over his creation that the clouds are the dust of his feet. Nature is the theater in which he displays his power and majesty and its showcase. God rebukes the sea and makes it it dry. He drieth up the rivers. God does that. God separated the waters of the Red Sea. God withholds rain. God dries up waters. Assyria, you may have your day. And and, and, And Nineveh, you may have your time. But you have no power like the power of God. And the day may seem dark, my friends. The day may, be, may seem difficult. And all around the world, it may seem like a bleak time. But take heart in this, my friends. God has power over all creation. We're all creation. Verse 5. The mountains quake at Him. The hills melt. The earth is burned in His presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Verse 6 describes these the anger of God and the power of God. It says that who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? Who can do it? Nobody. Nobody. His fury is poured out like fire. The rocks are thrown down by him. This is the God who gives comfort. 
It's kind of like the little boy on the playground. He's getting bullied. He's getting beat up. Lunch money's getting taken. I know that was none of us. But he takes comfort in knowing that his dad's got him. Or that his big brother's coming out soon. And when I tell big brother what happened, he's going to take care of this. Take comfort, little Jerusalem. Take comfort, little Judah. Your big brother's got this. Your God's got this. And you might be getting bullied and mistreated. And Christian, you might feel like you're in a, you're in a dark world where, it's, where it's the evil is all around us and the sin is all around us and the problems are all around us and death and destruction and despair are all around us. But take care today, my friends, because God has got this. He's got it. In case you wonder about the power of God, Psalm 24, 8 says, The Lord, who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So how should the ungodly and heathen world respond to this God? Well, Psalm 99 says it pretty well. The Lord reigneth. The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. Let the people tremble. I think for the Christian, the reason we don't take comfort in, in truth like this and the, 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 the importance of God's fury and God's anger and God's jealousy and God's vengeance, we don't take comfort in these words. The reason is because we want to be the one to take vengeance. We want to be the one that is fierce. We want to be the one that's got holy, righteous indignation and fury. But we need to understand that the mountains don't quake at us, the waters aren't dried up by us, the rivers aren't, aren't parted by us, that we are not the ones who take power over the storm and over the clouds. It is God. It will always be God. He will have His day. There will be a time where all the Ninevehs of the world are put down. Take comfort. Take comfort. And I conclude here, number three, quickly. Because here's the good news. For all that, for all what seems to be the, the difficult news, number three, we see the God who gives comfort. Notice what Nahum writes here. Verse number seven. He said, the Lord is good. What? I thought he was jealous. That's bad. No, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them that trust in him. With an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. The Lord is good. He's good. Are you in a time of trouble? The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Once again, we find our God, the God who gives comfort, his wrath, his fury, and his kindness all together. I was talking to Mindy about that this morning. We don't want to split up God. We don't want to split God into different persons. He's not this kind God over here, this mean God here, this loving God here. No, that is all His glory. His glory is all of these attributes. God is both holy, just, vengeful, just, uh, um, um, wrathful, loving. It's all together. 
Psalm 46, 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Verse 8 tells us about the God who gives comfort, who will bring a powerful flood to those that oppress Judah and the darkness that shall pursue his enemies because they don't stand a chance. Now just stay with me because I want to conclude here. I want you to think for just a moment about what we already said around the Lord's Supper. We spoke of specific categories about being an enemy of God. And God has reserved wrath for his enemies, Nahum said. We see that the cross tells us that God will not acquit the wicked. Sin must absolutely be paid. It must. And so for the Christian, for the New Covenant Christian, we look at so much of this and we understand that this is both what has already come and what is yet to come. It's that already not yet. It is that in Jesus, God has, God has punished His enemies. In Jesus, God has, He has not acquit the wicked. In Jesus, all of this has been paid for. The wrath and the fury of a holy God was put on Christ. So the Christian gets to step back this morning and we get to run to the God of comfort knowing that Jesus took all that. He took the fury. He took the vengeance. He took all that on Him so that we won't experience that. This is the good news of the Gospel. This is the good news of, of the Christian who's living on this side of the cross. We will not face that kind of fury. Take comfort, my friends, while knowing while knowing this world since the time of Christ has not yet seen. It has not yet seen what happens when the wrath and judgment and justice of a holy God is put out. But it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. So let me give you some practical applications this morning for comfort. Number one. Deep, com deep comfort is only found in God who is greater than my problems, my pain, and my persecutors. Let me say that again. Deep comfort is only found in God who is greater than my problems, my pain, and my persecutors. You are not a victim of circumstances. You're a victor because of Jesus. Deep comfort is found in the one who is greater. Greater. Number two, deep comfort is found in trusting God to keep score and bring justice and judgment. Stop keeping track of all the sins that people in your life put against you. Stop keeping score. God is greater. God will bring justice. God will make things right. Isaiah 31, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Stop trusting in, in the power of this because there's a lot of it and this because it looks powerful. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Woe to them, Isaiah said. He's talking about this time frame. During the time of Hezekiah. Woe to them. My friends, stop looking at what looks strong around you and look up the one who is strong. Number three, deep comfort is found in seeing a Savior who took all the wrath and judgment of God on Him at the cross so we may find rest in the grace of the Gospel. And number four, 
deep comfort is found in looking to the soon return of Jesus, who will bring final judgment to the ungodly at his second coming. Keep your eyes, keep your eyes up. Keep your eyes up. My friend, I simply want to give you some encouragement today by what is described about our God. But I don't want to just give you a little little shot of encouragement, but I want to give you a transformational reality about the God who has saved you through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And I want to promise you this, the cross tells you, the cross tells you that God will cause those who do evil and wicked to pay. To pay. Nineveh paid in 612 when the Babylonians conquered them. The Babylonians paid. Evil has its day. But you can rest assured that God will have his. Study the day of the Lord in the Scripture. Study the judgment of God in the Scripture. We need to find comfort in those, in those realities. We need to find comfort in them. I have to conclude, but I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I simply want to say I've given you here some applications that might apply to your specific life. But let me simply say to anybody here or watching online who doesn't know Christ as his Savior, say, Pastor, tell me about the God who who you preach about this morning. One of the best ways I could tell you is do not fall into his hands as an unbeliever, unrepentant of sin. Because God will punish like you have never experienced punishment. God will judge like you've never experienced judgment. God's wrath being poured out, God's wrath being poured out is something that no person will ever want to face. No person. Nahum writes and says, oh, Nineveh's going to experience. Let me tell you what Nineveh's going to experience. They're going to experience, don't miss this, they're going to experience justice. They're going to experience the wrath of a furious God. And if you're an unbeliever, if you've never come to Christ in faith, I do not want you to have that day when your sins must be paid for by yourself. Say, what's the answer? Jesus has paid for them for you already. Jesus paid for them. Jesus took what I promise you you do not want to take. The fury of hell for the unbeliever to say, Pastor, what do I, what do I, how do I avoid that? Well, the gospel is simple for us, but it wasn't simple for Jesus. The cross says Jesus died for sinners. So you have to understand that you're a sinner who deserves the just wrath of God. You have to understand that as a sinner who deserves the just wrath of God, that apart from Jesus, you must pay for that sin and experience that wrath in hell. Eternal damnation. But you don't have to. Because the great exchange already took place. Jesus took your sin on Him at the cross so that you can take His righteousness and it's available to you by faith. For by grace are you saved 
through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God through Jesus. And you can come to Christ today. And if you've never come to Jesus in faith and you're in the room or you're watching online, we want to, we want to be able to take the Word of God and show you how you can be saved. How you can be saved from that death in hell. If you're online, would you send us an email? Send it to info at ravenswoodbaptist.org. Info at ravenswoodbaptist.org. And we want to send you a gift and set up a time where we can share the gospel with you. And if you're in the room because of our current situation, we're simply going to ask that you catch me on the way out. See me on the way out and say, Pastor, I don't know that I would spend eternity in heaven. I don't want to face the wrath of God in hell. We'd love to take the Word of God and show you how you could be saved. The Christian, those words that we just read, I want to encourage you, study them this week and take deep comfort. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.